I don't know if you were struck last week as Drew was speaking about the first half of Hebrews 10, but there's this powerful idea that we learned that we are perfected, past tense, fully forever by Jesus' work on the cross. That idea is so mission critical to living as a Christian and understanding the warnings and the celebrations in the back half of chapter 10 today. In fact, this is considered probably the second most difficult portion of the Bible, certainly of Hebrews, is the section we're going to look at at the end today. But think about those words we said last week. You've been perfected forever by Jesus' sacrifice. I like to use the metaphor of a mirror. When you look into the mirror of God's grace, when you read the Bible, what are you seeing in that mirror? it like oh my hair man a mess wish I had some hair for that matter are you seeing smudges and blemishes when you come to the to the gospel and like man I have got to do something about this then you walk away and you start cleaning yourself up or is it mirror mirror on the wall who's the fairest of them all and God's grace says to you you are perfect in Christ And you're like, I want to live consistent with that. That is the best version of me. I couldn't even imagine me being that perfect. I want to use the metaphor of a mirror. It's a little clearer in the book of uh, James than work backwards to Hebrews. Here's what it says in the book of James. I want you to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. Otherwise, you deceive yourself. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, this is the bad example... He's like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. So is that his perfected face or is that his smudged face? It gets real clear in a second. The bad version, the guy who's not doing the right thing, observes his natural face. Observing himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he saw and does the opposite. Well, if he's doing the opposite doing bad things, not practicing it, it means he must be observing a perfect version of himself, forgets the perfect version of himself, and does the opposite. He then gives you the illustration the opposite direction. But, here's what I want you to do, I want you to look into the perfect law of liberty. See yourself cleansed and patient and joyful and kind and peace-filled. How Jesus sees you. Look into the perfect law of liberty. Then continue. Look at that word. Continue in what you saw. Don't be a forgetful hearer of what you saw. A doer of what you saw. And you will be blessed in everything you do. Have you ever heard that explained that way? That when you come to the Bible or to grace or Jesus, you see yourself perfected. And that's the engine by which you live the Christian life. See, what we're going to discover in Hebrews today is that there is no other mirror. No philosophy, no religion, no educational claim that even attempts to make the claim that you can be perfected by God. Because of what the message is they're delivering. There is no other mirror that you can peer into. And walk away perfected. Let's go back to what Drew said last week. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being, oh, applying 
being sanctified by the reality of what they saw. So we're going to look at two phrases today. What does it mean that there's no other mirror, there's no other grace, there's no other covenant, there's no other offering? And what does it mean to walk in that perfection? And what are the consequences of walking away? Because they're serious. My hope is that we can find a vision of how God sees us in Christ and not turn to other things besides Jesus to build our identity on. Our good works, our status, our titles, things that we think are going to somehow add to the mirror of grace. All right? First aspect of that phrase we're going to look at is there's no other mirror. His covenant is the mirror that makes all other mirrors irrelevant. The Jewish sacrificial system, now irrelevant. The offerings, the high priests, all those things that you've read about, studied, and practiced for many, many years are now irrelevant because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus anything, fill in whatever you think is going to help you be a little bit more cleaner besides Jesus. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Let's talk about that mirror and why there are no other ones. He says, but the Holy Spirit also witnessed to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant I'm offering you. I'm going to make with them after those days. I'm going to put my laws in their hearts. And in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Perfection. Now, where there is remission of sins... There is no longer an offering for sin. I want you to make note of that verse. Because in this verse, it doesn't look offensive at all. Yeah, if this mirror doesn't get the job done, and after it does get the job done of forgiving you and cleansing you, there's no other offering. There's no other mirror. There's no other covenant. There's nowhere else to go. It's basically saying that yellow part of the verse up there. Since Jesus gets the job done, there's no other alternatives. So don't turn to Judaism, it's not going to get the job done. Don't turn to your own works, it's not going to get the job done. Does that make sense? Now keep that in mind, because this same phrase is going to be used in about 15 minutes from now, and it's going to cause havoc, thinking that maybe you're not a Christian. And all it's saying is, if you turn away from that, there's no other alternative to go to. That's all he's saying. Keep that in mind, we're going to come back to it in 15 minutes. All right, so with that idea, he's just told us there's no other mirrors, there's no other offering, there's no other covenant that's going to get the job done. What you have found in Christ, what we have in Christ, is the engine. So how do you grow as a Christian? Peering into his perfection of me is the source of sanctification in me. If you're having trouble growing and having the fruit of his spirit in your life, You don't need to try harder. You need to get closer to the mirror. See who you are in Christ. Get closer to who he sees you to be, what he's done for you. That perfection of me is the source of sanctification in me. That's what motivates us to go, man, I want to live consistent with what God has already made me to be. And I want to show you by outlining this text how that idea comes out. All right, here's what he says. Therefore, brethren... I want you to know that when you get that you're perfected in God, you can have boldness to enter the holiest place. Not like, 
tiptoe in. Hey, can I come in? You're too busy. Oh, you know, let me wash up. You can boldly come in to the holiest place. That word boldness means courageous, open, confidently you come into dad's throne room. I'm washed. I'm perfected. I am cleansed. I am guilt-free and shame-free. Man, it's good to be here with God. You're coming into the holiest of places. And you do it not by your own works, but by the blood of Christ, blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, not a dead way, which he consecrated for us. The word here for consecrated means he put into effect. God put into effect. God made it happen. God allowed you to live this thing out. Don't you want to put into effect what does it really look like to live as a Christian? He says, you can do that. When you see it's the only covenant and you walk in that covenant, you can put it into effect. And then he says, here's where, here's when you peer into it. Here's what you discover. Guys, you get to walk through the veil. That is his flesh. Having a high priest over the house of God, which he's talked about for multiple chapters. So let us draw near. God's not mad at you. God's not ashamed of you. God's not got a lightning bolt ready to hit you. You draw near to somebody who accepts you. And you draw near to them with a true heart, he says, in full assurance of faith. So for these Hebrews who are tempted to say, well, Jesus is something, but he's not everything. He says, guys, keep believing, keep peering into the face of the gospel. That's his application here. He says, guys, I want you to keep believing that Jesus is and does what he said he did. Keep peering into your perfection in the covenant, knowing it's the only true mirror. You don't need to substitute it for something else. And then this comes to a section of the Bible I call the salad portion of the book of Hebrews. The salad portion. Where he's going to basically build this whole case and not just apply it individually to us, but apply it to us as a group. You ready for some salad? I'm not a big salad fan, but we're going to have some salad here together. I'll show you in a second. He says, for by one offering he perfected us. Jump back to verse 14. And therefore we are sanctified, verse 21, because we have a high priest over the house of God. Here's a salad. Let us. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us draw near with hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. Here comes some more salad. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Don't give away. Don't look for other mirrors. Don't look for other covenants. Let us hold it fast. The confession of our hope without wavering. The guy who promises is faithful. Ready for more lettuce? Here it comes. More lettuce. Salad time. And verse 24, let us consider one another. Let's stir one another up to love each other, to have good works toward one another. And our brethren, because of his good works, because of his love, let's encourage each other to just keep peering and just keep believing and just keep loving others the way he loved us. Let us consider one another. The stir up love and good works. Don't forsake the assembling of yourself together. You can't do this on your own. It's just too tough. You've got to remind each other. Some of you, it's become your manner to not assemble together. But guys, let us exhort one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
peering into the gospel, understanding the gospel, incorporating the power of it in your life is something that requires us to do it together. Let us. We get to see examples that all the time. I was talking to uh, Drew about his group a few weeks ago. And he mentioned a guy in his group named Will. Will decided to have the small group over to have just a barbecue, just a hangout time. And while they were doing that, he built this seven-foot-tall tripod with a two-foot diameter oval swinging from three chains, or two chains, three, I think. And they would put these gigantic steak, pork steaks cooking over a bonfire. Everybody sat around this thing with a stick. You would tell stories while you're poking at it to keep it to not burning and to make sure the heat would, would distribute properly. So you'd tell a few stories, poke. Tell a few stories, poke. And this thing just swings back and forth on the fire. And as they're telling stories and yucking it up and just having a great time, they suddenly turned to kind of a serious moment where Will, with his wife on one side and his kids on the other, looked at the group and said, Guys, I want to say thanks. You know, I started a men's Bible study with Doug Daly years and years and years ago. And understanding God and his grace and his message is transforming me from the inside out. And I today am a better husband, he said in front of his wife. And a better dad, he said in front of his kids, because of you. The way you've encouraged me, the way you've taught me, the way you've stirred me up and allowed me to understand this. We're now going verse by verse through this book together, the book of Hebrews in their group. And I am a better person because you're helping me live out this thing called the gospel. That's what lettuce looks like. That's what a salad church looks like. People who peer together into this incredible good news. Like that's what we do as a church, right? It's what we're about as a church and as a community. We recognize that all of us in our spiritual journey take one step at a time. At some point we had questions, we had doubts, and somebody came alongside us and said it's okay to have those doubts, it's okay to have those questions. And they helped us take a step. It might have been a mom, a dad, a Sunday school teacher, a coach, a friend, but somebody helped us take that first step. We still didn't necessarily believe in Jesus, but we had an environment to ask those questions. And then we took another step. We thought maybe all Christians were hypocrites, because a lot of them are. We thought a lot of Christians, you know, had taken a lobotomy because they couldn't answer any questions. But, man, we met somebody who was genuine, a neighbor or friend, who, who could really explain not moralism, not religion, but the gospel. And in that, we became a follower of Jesus. And then someone helped us grow. And we took another step. And another step happened 10, 20 years ago. We consider ourselves a Bible veteran now. We've been a 20-year in the Bible, 20 years studying and living out the gospel. And one might think that would be success. Boy, that's some big steps. But that's not success at Horizon. It's a lot to celebrate. But success is saying, no, I'm going to take where I'm at, and I'm going to go back and invest in somebody that might be a step behind me. They never studied the Bible together. They never wrestled with that question before. They didn't know who they are in Christ. And I want to learn how to have those dialogue, invest in people, spend my time, my energy, my money in helping other people take a step. 
Instead of being caught in my holy huddle, I want to learn to be able to take a step back and have conversations with people who don't believe the way I do and don't, don't think that what I believe is true. I want to know how to talk with them and dialogue with them the way someone did for me. And I want to build relationships with people who don't go to church. I want to be an example at my workplace. I want to be an example in, in my family, in my neighborhood, on my soccer team, with the kids I coach, of what it means to, to live out this life of Jesus. And as a church, we create what we call exploring environments where people can explore their faith. Connecting environments where people can connect with one another. Find out Christians maybe aren't all stick in the muds. And they don't say things like stick in the mud. Because stick in the mud, say stick in the mud. And, 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 and equipping environments where we learn how to be equipped in the Bible. This is what we do as a church. Let us. Peer into the gospel, discover what it is, connect with one another, and then verse by verse teach for all these weeks we've just been reflecting over and over and over again on the grace of God, who he is and what he's done in our life. Now, you know what an equipping environment is. You're sitting in one. Maybe you invite a friend to our exploring environment at 11 o'clock. This next series we're starting this week, Taylor Made, is a great one to invite them to. But maybe you've got somebody who's still not ready to come to anything religious. Maybe you want to invite them to a connecting environment. We have one coming up next Saturday. Ken Kington does comedy events all over the country. Maybe you've heard him speak and teach the Bible here, but you've never heard him do his comedy. If you want to invite a friend to come listen to some live music, just do pure laugh together out loud here at the church, next Saturday is a great event. It's one of our connecting environments. I'll give you a chance to uh, hear a little piece of of Ken's comedy. Then we're going to dive into the difficult part of this passage. All right, let's watch. I tell you this, my least favorite phrase as a dad, I might have. I might have. Last February, it was cold last February. I'm driving my sons to school when I hear out of the back seat, uh oh. (laughs) What do you mean, uh oh? Uh, I'm, I might, I might have forgot something. <laughs> I might have forgot something. Now I want to just take a little poll here. Someone on this side of the room here, at February, driving to school, he might have forgotten what? Coat. Coat. Very good. Very good. Backpack. Very good. I thought of those as well. That wasn't it, but those are good guesses. Someone over here just, I might have forgotten. Who said Shoes. Do you know my son? (laughs) He said, I might have forgot my shoes. I said, well, look on your feet. (laughs) Do you see shoes on your feet? No, sir. (laughs) At what point do you walk outside? across a cold concrete floor and not have the thought, there's nothing on my feet. (laughs) Amazing. And it didn't stop there. It's just ongoing. A week later, my wife told my kids, grab your shoes, get in the car, we're going to eat dinner out tonight. My son's in the living room. (laughs) I said, did you hear your mother? Yes, sir. Go get your shoes. I don't know where they are. 
I said, I'll give you a hint. They're not on the ceiling. <laughs> Go get your shoes. I don't know where they are. I asked him, where's the last place you put them? He did not say anything, but the look on his face was like, well, Yoda. If I knew that, I would go get them. I have a college education and I am sucked into this conversation. the dumbest question known to man. I said, where is the last place you remember having them? On my feet. <laughs> so again, the reason we create these environments is because we hope by building friendships and having opportunities for people to maybe come on our campus for the first time and the relationship you're already building, it might be a step. It might eventually lead somebody to explore faith in Jesus. So use these tools as ways in which you can help people in your life and their journey. All right, a couple things on that. Um, two opportunities to meet with Ken. One, starting tonight, men's ministry, critical decisions, and then also that comedy event that we just looked at, if that's something that's interesting to you. All right, so we've learned so far that there's no other mirror besides grace. Now we're going to learn that walking in that perfection brings incredible sanctification in your life, but walking away from it brings incredible, serious consequences. I mean, this is a very strong warning verse. Here's how it says it. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's the verse that stops everyone. If you sin willfully, what does it mean to sin? Which sins? Is there venial sins, mortal sins? Is there a big list of sins? Where do I find this list? I need to avoid that list. Sin willfully? I thought every time I sinned it was willfully. Is it accidental sins? Oh my goodness, I had an affair. How did that happen? Accidentally lust? Accidentally lie? After we've received the knowledge of the truth. That sounds like a real Christian. I guess if you willfully sin and you're really a Christian, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. You don't get in anymore. Remember that phrase I told you to hold on to 15 minutes ago? Same phrase. There no longer remains a sacrifice. All he's saying is, there's no alternative. If you're going to abandon this mirror and go and believe something else, there's no alternatives out there. There's nothing else that's going to get the job done. But there are serious consequences to making that decision, as he says. But there's going to be a certain fearful expectation of judgment, fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of, of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who's trampled on the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood of this covenant of which he was sanctified a common thing. You've insulted the spirit of grace. We're real slowly trying to unpack this. I'll put the verse on one side and kind of my explanation on the other side as we can track through this together. All right, there's several different views here. I'll give you the views to begin. View number one is you can't come back. 
that this verse is saying, if you sin, you do something bad on purpose, which I do every hour, after you're a Christian, you lose your salvation, and if that's not bad enough, there's no way back. No sacrifice covers this kind of thing. To which I would just say, it's inconsistent with everything we've learned, including the previous verse in the chapter, you've been perfected forever. So whatever this says has to be consistent with what we learned last week. Number two, you can't fix that. If you, a Christian, sin, you stop believing Christ is Savior, not some aspect of Torah, God won't forgive or cover that. He can forgive everything except rejecting Christ. Well, didn't he say back in verse 14, you're perfected forever? Well, if you're perfected forever, then you're perfected forever. You tell me God can't fix something? So here's the predominant view Christians take and commentators take. They can't be real Christians here. See, if you sin on purpose, you clearly weren't, aren't, and can't be a real Christian. And so then you read passages like this. Well, am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? I think I sinned on purpose. Maybe it wasn't really on purpose. And you just caught, caught in not having security, not having boldness, not having sure, sure, full, sure assurance in God. So I want to give you a fourth view, as I did during Hebrews 6. And it's still a harsh warning, by the way. You can't miss the consequences if you do what this person did in the text. Real Christians who stop believing that Jesus is sufficient will have serious consequences. I'll give you a quick list of them. You'll reap what you sow and going down different paths. You have the discipline of the Holy Spirit, Hebrews chapter 12. You'll have the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. You'll have the loss of future rewards. God loves you too much to have you walk away and not go after you as his son or daughter. That's just a quick list. So with that in mind, let's see what we think he's saying. That real Christians who turn away from Christ being the only way are going to have serious consequences. If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, if real Christians sin willfully, which means by believing something other than Jesus will get them favor with God. That's been his whole point for 11 chapters or 10 chapters. After we've received the knowledge of the truth, he's talking about real Christians, then what? Next verse. If we sin willfully, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. If real Christians stop believing Jesus is sufficient, there's no other place to go to get perfected for your sins, but instead fearful expectation of fire for trampling on God's gift. To which every time Christians see the word fire, they get tempted to read into the verse something that's not there. There's been no mention of lake of fire, no mention of hell, so don't read into the writer's text something that he doesn't mention before, after, or anywhere in the book. As I mentioned in Hebrews chapter 6, fire is a metaphor for consequences, not eternal separation from God. Think of it this way. We're in living in olden day. And you decide to go and fight the fiery dragon, the dragon of Arakan. You gotta tell the story with that kind of voice. And as you go to cake on the, the dragon of Arakan, the fire breathing dragon, Merlin comes up to you and says, Ah, I've got a piece of glass, a mirror forged in the depths of Middle Earth, and it will withstand the fires of the dragon. So you pick up this shield made of pure glass forged in the depths of Middle Earth. You go charging into battle, and sure enough, there's the dragon, and he looks at you, and <laughs> fire 
shooting forth from you and you hold up this piece of purified glass and sure enough, fire shoots to your left, fire shoots to your right, fire goes over the top. You're like, this thing works! You don't even smell like fire. You don't even feel the fire. You come back to Merlin, you're like, wow, that was amazing! But I'm not sure it was the glass you gave me. Merlin's like, what do you mean? I think it's me. What? Yeah. You put the mirror down, and you're like, I think I'm going to try the bathroom mirror. And so you take your little mirror, you substitute the pure mirror forged in the depths of Middle Earth, and you go charging into battle because you got something better. And you go charging toward the dragon, he looks at you, and he's like, Really? Really? And you're running in toward a battle, and the, the dragon's like, your hair singed off. Oh, your foot's on fire. And oh my goodness, the, the mirror melted. You're like, oh my goodness, that didn't get the job done. There's consequences to you for swapping from the mirror that gets the job done to some other covenant sacrifice or idol that you think you can build your identity on. So with that image in mind, let's keep unpacking the text. Because I think that's what he's talking about. You've swapped from Jesus being the only way to Jesus plus Judaism or something else being the way. He says, A certain fearful expectation of judgment, fiery indignation. If the law of Moses was subordinate to grace and there were consequences to rejecting that, how much more will there be consequences to rejecting the message of Jesus? Do you not suppose he will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Here's my interpretation. But instead of grace and perfection and love, there's an expectation for trampling at God's gift. Like in the past, fire, not hell, for Christians is the serious consequences of trampling on the Son of God's gift by thinking it a common thing. Do you remember that phrase, a common thing, we looked at? I'll pull it back up here for you. You've treated the precious blood of Christ, that Jesus Christ, God himself, came to earth, shed his blood, went down to the depths of Middle Earth and hell itself to get the keys of death and bring them up to you. And you're like, yeah, now I'll live however I want. I know Jesus, I know his perfection, so I'm just going to live in whatever I want, treat people however I want. You're treating the precious blood of Jesus like a common thing. And remember, our writer is an expert on the Levitical system, the priest system, Levitical codes, and he's mentioned Moses again here. I think he has in mind a clear example when he says common thing, incorrect sacrifice, that they would immediately have brought to bear. To which you're thinking, oh yeah, I was thinking of it too. It's good old Nadab and Elihu. Is that what you're thinking? Who's Nadab and Abihu? Let me jump back and tell the story. And I think it is worth considering here. It's all in the context of what he's talked about. These were Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. These were priests, and God had laid out exactly how to give sacrifices. And they decide one day, though they've been doing it fine for many, many years, been doing it right, and washing themselves, cleansing themselves, leading people into worship for years, just one day they decide to treat God's standards as a common thing, and they offer a strange fire is what it says. 
So Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and they put fire in it, put incense in it, and then they offered profane fire, not correct. They didn't treat it the way God told them to to treat it before the Lord. He had not commanded them to do it this way. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. That's not good. And they died before the Lord. Which is why many people are like, thank goodness for Jesus and the cross. We don't have that Old Testament angry God who's like the narcissist. All right, that's what most people think. I want to give you a different metaphor. I want you to imagine instead, it's like my dad who part-time was a welder and he had a welder in our garage. And he would say, Chad, if you want to come out and watch me weld, don't look at the ark. Your eyes can't handle it. You, you will burn your eyes out unless you wear a shield. But I want you to come into my presence. I want you to see what I'm doing. But you've got to wear the proper covering. Well, that's exactly what God told his people. I want you to wear the proper covering to come into my presence. There's a very specific way to come into holy space. Don't treat holy space as a common thing. Well, these two priests decide they're going to wander in and treat it like a common thing. And sure enough, like looking at that welding arc, they burned their eyes. They suffered the consequences of treating a common thing or a sacred thing like a common thing. Moses replies to Aaron, he says this, This is what the Lord spoke. He said, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people must be glorified. Now here's what's interesting. Amongst Hebrew scholars, they produce something called midrash. It's like commentary on the Old Testament. And the Bible itself mentions these two characters over and over and over again. Nadab and Abihu. It's mentioned in Leviticus and Numbers and Numbers and Numbers and Numbers and First Chronicles and First Chronicles. It celebrates these priests for what they did right. It does not in any way say they're probably not in heaven, they're probably not real Christians, they probably didn't get it, but they suffered serious consequences as priests, as leaders, as Old Testament Christians, even though the Bible and Hebrew commentators clearly seem to show that they had washed themselves properly a hundred times before, and we will probably see them in heaven. So I think the warning comes to us. Don't be like Nadab and Abihu. People who've peered into the grace of God, but you've chosen to treat it like a common thing. And I think that's the application for us, by the way. I think that's what we're called to come away with on this text is I'll call the three W's. The warning. In light of everything Jesus has done and the cost God made, And the perfection he gives. Let me warn you. Don't treat it like a common thing. Don't waste it. Don't become complacent. Don't live your life haphazardly. Not living out the idea of pleasing God because he made you pleasing to him. In fact, that's the next verse. That warning is even clearer in the next verse. It says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Oh no, who's he going to repay? I thought I was forgiven. And again, the Lord will judge who? His people. Not the other nations. He judges his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. There's a sense of awe. There's a sense of reverence. There's a sense of 
How can these both be true? How can I be perfected forever and want to draw near with confidence and also have this healthy fear? Well, Hebrews 12 is going to address that. The reason God disciplines us is because we're his children. We're heading on paths that are leading to destruction. He can't not do something about that. That's going to hurt. I got to help. I got to steer. I got to turn. I got to discipline. I got to say, whoa. Not because you're no longer my child, but because you're my people. Because you're my son or daughter. I've got to intervene. I, I, I care that much. So maybe you haven't heard our warning from the Bible in a while. Do not stomp on the perfection of God and think you can live haphazardly with no consequences. But two, watch. Watch who you are in Christ. Daily come back and peer into the grace of God and be struck again, struck again at who he is and what he's done in you. And say, how would I not want to live like that guy? Like how God sees me. I want to be a husband like that. I want to be a dad like that. I want to be a leader like that. I want to watch so every day. You don't have to worry about the warnings if you're focused on the watching and walking out the reality of his grace in your life. So what do people do who've been washed? Who God's been so patient with and so kind with and so loving? They wash others. They forgive others. They give mercy to others. In fact, in a small way, it's one of the things we're doing starting this week as a church. Many of you have grabbed our blue bags before, but we now have these new brown bags we're releasing. We're collecting hygiene products for folks who maybe don't have the products they need to wash physically. And so maybe part of your application today is saying, hey, I've been washed spiritually forever by Jesus. How can I not collect some things for people who need to be washed tangibly and physically? Maybe you say, hey, I, I, I want to be part of creating environments, inviting somebody to a comedy event so they can discover other people who've been washed. And maybe they one day will come and hear a message and explore faith here at our, our church. Maybe you want to serve. Because we're not just serving to plug time on Sundays. It's we're creating environments where people can discover this perfecting message of Jesus. Maybe when you give financially, you know, realize that you're actually giving in such a way to help people explore, connect, and be equipped at our church. Because something powerful happens when people peer into that mirror of grace. Mirror, mirror, on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? You are perfected by Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible warning and reminder of your grace. May we take the warning of Nadab and Abihu and not treat the precious blood of Jesus commonly, but walk in full confidence of what you've done for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all next week.